Dear Father, we bow our hearts before you this morning. I pray as we open the scriptures together that you would open our eyes to see who we are in light of your righteousness and your holiness. Outside of Christ, we are deserving of every bit of wrath that could possibly be poured out against us as wicked sinners who stand, Lord Jesus, in rebellion against your holy name. Yet once we have been ransomed and redeemed and resurrected to newness of life, we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, whose imputed law-keeping justifies us. We are in good standing before the Father. Lord, there could not be a starker black and white in all of history than the difference between that which you've redeemed and that which stands condemned. I pray, Lord, for those of us that are in Christ this morning, that as we see these truths again in Scripture, that you would quicken our hearts unto faithfulness in light of what you have done, and that you would quicken our affections unto worship and gratitude and praiseworthy prayer and thank-offering unto you, God for moving heaven and earth in our redemption. For those who lie outside the fold, I pray, Lord, that you would call them through the preaching of your word today. Even as your word tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now as we open our scriptures, Lord, open us to the teaching of your word. We recognize that this is your spirit's work now. There is no power in the servant who gives the message. There is no ability to hear unless you quicken both. And so we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open the Scriptures together this morning. Let's do so by turning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 or 7 through 13. The second half of that chapter will be our text today. We're picking up on our Hebrew series as it is Communion Sunday. And this morning we're asking what's new. That's the title of this message today. What's new, that is, in the New Covenant. What is it that the author draws our attention to? Aspects of the covenant now, as the Testaments have turned a page. In Christ, what can we expect to be different than that which was known prior to Him? in the provisional and more temporal in nature covenants of old, like the Mosaic, Abrahamic, etc. As we see this new administration unfolding in glorious beauty in the book of Hebrews, we're learning the great wisdom of our God as the new covenant is unfolded with facets of beautiful, God-glorifying grace. So stand with me if you would, and if you're able, and let us turn to Hebrews again, chapter 8, reading together verses 7 through 13. Follow me as I declare God's word to us today. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people." 
And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. This morning, our two primary texts, points of reference for our study, considering that the author of Hebrews has cited Jeremiah, will be in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have a thumb in each, that will be helpful as we turn back and forth in the course of today's sermon. Turning back just a few pages, though, let's reread Hebrews 1.1 to grasp the opening phrases which provide the context even of our passage today. The author records, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's continue to verse 2. And let's, it strikes us in this passage that the newness of the new covenant is unfolded in the first sentence of this great book. But in these last days, so there the conjunction indicating something different, something unique, something that has dawned on the historical horizon like so many sun rays of the early morning. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. There was a time our author records in one one. in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, a time of old where He spoke exclusively by prophets. But in these last days, in the newness of the new covenant, we hear the voice of His Son Himself, Jesus Christ who is the appointed heir of all things and through whom all things were created. In Hebrews chapter 8, it is only fitting then that the author would draw our attention to some of what has been recorded in ages past. He does so by citing the major prophet Jeremiah in these verses, beginning in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 signals, uh, signals a milestone reached in special revelation. That is the knowledge of God himself expressly revealed in his word declared through his prophets to the hearts of all who have ears to hear. There is a milestone reached in special revelation in the course of his redemptive history, a superlative if you will, a greater, a moment of climax, a threshold of revelation has been crossed, eclipsing the former, eclipsing the former administration, era, or order. The old covenant priesthood has been eclipsed by the high priest of high priest, Jesus Christ. The old era where the word of God was confined to mere men, though moved on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now has been eclipsed, has been surpassed by Jesus Christ himself speaking. The incarnate Son of God, declaring the message of His kingdom. The old administration, an understanding of the format and the structure, the constitution and the order of God's promises and His relationship to man, has been there in shadow and symbolic form, but now it's being revealed in its substance as Jesus Christ declares the truth and His apostles record, interpret, and apply His directives. Thus, the direction and movement of redemptive history has been from the prophets to his son. The prophets once spoke, his son now speaks. 
from mere human messengers, those sinners who spoke of old under the inspiration of the Spirit, an exception to the rest of their character or the prophets, to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, God incarnate, Emmanuel in the flesh. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God Himself has declared with power and authority His new covenant. He is, that is, Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, and, as we see in Hebrews 1, is single-handedly responsible for the creative power behind the entire material universe. It is therefore fitting that the author of Hebrews would quote passages from the Old Covenant prophets and demonstrate how they foreshadow, how they predict the greater glory of Christ. Jeremiah saw through a glass dimly, so to speak, the age upon which the author of Hebrews now comments. Jeremiah is the featured prophet in Hebrews chapter 8, and the significance of his words are shown to depend, they rest entirely on what was to come in his day, that is, the new covenant. The new covenant, the new order, the new era, the new administration that is ratified and mediated by Jesus Christ. That is, it is authoritatively established, ratified, mediated, that is, that he himself is the instrument by which we connect to the truth. He is the one that goes between. He is the advocate. The new covenant has been ratified and mediated by Jesus Christ. And this is the great truth to which Jeremiah had prophesied. Thus, Jesus Christ, our federal or representative head of the covenant of grace, has now revealed in full color and glorious manifestation what had been there in shadowy and symbolic form of old. This morning, as we ask ourselves, what is new about the new covenant? Perhaps we can organize our passage under this heading. What's new in the new covenant is, then the following, number one, introduced in context. The newness of the new covenant is introduced in a context, uh, namely that of Jeremiah, but also there's a rhetorical context that we'll discover as well as the historical context. Secondly, what's new is, inter, or is uh, intensely relational. What's new in the new covenant is a relational intensity that has not been seen to the degree and dimension that Christ has made it known in prior eras, but now is manifest in the New Testament, in the new covenant. Number three, the newness of the new covenant. We see in these verses that it is intrinsically powerful. So we find it introduced in a context we find that it is intensely relational. And number three, it is intrinsically powerful. So let us return to our text today and begin to dig into these points a little more. Again, Hebrews 8, 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Israel. Of Judah. Turn back with me, if you would, to Jeremiah 31. These words should sound familiar to you if you've been spending time in the Old Testament lately. Jeremiah declares this day, and this citation is a direct quote from this chapter, chapter 31. Let's look at 27 through 30 before we, well, first of all, verse 31 itself. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So you see nearly identically, word for word, this passage is cited as fulfilled in Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 8. But let's back up a little to verse 27 and we can grasp the context in Jeremiah's prophecy. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And then we see a shift, don't we? From this imagery of stark and drastic judgment, dying for our sins, all of life turning sour in our mouth, and everyone being accountable for their wickedness, and thus dying under the wrath and curse of God, we see a shift in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. There's going to be something different. The newness of the new covenant is that in the days of the future, declares the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But again, let's note the context. Jeremiah was called to proclaim two aspects, two covenantal aspects, generally speaking, of truth. One, those who stand in a certain condition will be judged, therefore plucked up, broken down, overthrown, and destroyed. Secondly, there are those who receive favor, and these will be welcomed back in, gathered from the far corners of the earth, made again children of the house of Israel, and they will receive glorious forgiveness from their iniquity, and their sin will be remembered by the sovereign no more. Turn back a few more pages to Jeremiah chapter 1. The message that the author of Hebrews chooses to highlight is a message that is absolutely central to this book and to the message of the prophets generally. They speak judgment for the unfaithfulness that is deserving on the covenant breaker, but they also speak uh, reconciliation, redemption for those who find a substitute sacrifice. From the very beginning, this has been the duty and the call. It has, it has characterized the whole purpose of Jeremiah's existence is to declare these things. From the beginning, we see it so in the record, Jeremiah 1.4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and Jeremiah records his experience in the first person, before I formed you, he speaks the word of the Lord as it was delivered to him. In the womb, I knew you. So God's sovereign predestined plan for Jeremiah was to declare a particular message. And before you were born, I consecrated you. He goes on to say in verse 5, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Verse 6, then I said, this is Jeremiah answering, Oh Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to you, all to whom I send you, you shall go. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth. It reminds us of Isaiah, does it not? The tongs of the altar sanctify the lips of the prophet. And he begins to speak the holy word of God. The Lord said to me, and we read in verse 9, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms, and notice this language, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. And the last phrase, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do, we, what do you see? Then he begins to receive a message from the Lord where God uses a branch to demonstrate and illustrate his word to the people. But there we see in the context, the broader context of Jeremiah, the Jeremiah context, if you will, that the newness of the new covenant is demonstrated in this phrase, build and plant. However, in the context that Jeremiah was living in, as it is today, there was also an appropriate message for those who did not grasp the reality of the newness of the new covenant. And for them, the message was, if you do not repent, you'll be plucked up, broken down, destroyed, and overthrown. The author of Hebrews is zeroing in on the essence of the prophetic period in the prophets in the Old Covenant. He is drawing to our attention that the lines are drawn stark, clear, dramatic, black and white. Those who are outside the covenant and therefore outside the safety and the safekeeping of the relationship with the Lord and therefore have nothing but destruction and uprooting to look forward to. And then the second category, the light. Those who have been reinstituted into the covenant, who've been redeemed, who've been purchased, their sins atoned for, welcome back into the favorable presence of the Lord. This is the message that was declared from the mouth of Jeremiah. It is also the message that is declared by the author of Hebrews. But more specifically in Hebrews, it is the message that is ultimately, completely, sufficiently, and effectively fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the prophet of prophets, not just a prophet, but the sacrifice for our sins, the high priest who makes atonement for us, who goes into the true tent as we read in our last message, where in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1, the author says the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, where? In the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. He goes on to talk about the nature and work and call the, uh, of uh, high priests who are appointed to offer sacrifices and gifts. What has he done? He has drawn our attention to the eternal high priest to which the old order could only uh, foreshadow and signify but could not effectively fulfill. He has drawn our attention to the one whose death, whose intercession, whose sacrifice, whose priestly work could actually Make a reality for us the new covenant where the house of Israel and the house of Judah would be reconciled to each other and to the Lord. Not like the covenant of the former days when God had to take us by the hand, but a new covenant in which His word and law would be written on the heart, would be intrinsically part of our new being. When we are called forth in newness of life, when He changes us from the inside out, when we become regenerate, this is the work of the sovereign high priest whose effective work can accomplish what was prophesied of old. So the newness of the new covenant is introduced in context, the Jeremiah context. Secondly, there's a rhetorical context. There's an argument, a, devi a device in the text that the author uses to, point to, our, to, to draw to our attention something that was missing, lacking, something deficient in the old, that is fulfilled and present in the new. 
He says rhetorically in verse 7 of chapter 8 again in Hebrews, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Remember, the context again, the audience to which this letter was first received. The, the audience was likely not seeing the glories of Jesus Christ, but placing their faith, affections, and confidence in the old order. They perhaps did not have eyes to see that Jesus Christ was the only true high priest, and thus thought they themselves, through diligent law-keeping, could rebind themselves covenantally to the Lord and be in His good stead. Or perhaps they were looking forward to a reinstitution of animal sacrifices to atone for their sins that, yes, they felt, but did not know exactly what to do with. In this uh, old covenant, there is no ultimate answer to the plight of those who would look there. And indeed, the prophecies of the old covenant are drawn to our attention and this question as well. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Or the question being, why would Jeremiah prophesy of a new covenant if the old one was sufficient? Turn back a page or so. In chapter 7, we see this same device used in verse 11. The author says of the priesthood, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Abram of, of Aaron, excuse me. Now this passage is not unique to the author of Hebrews. To what does he refer? Psalm 110. Do you remember? There was a prophecy in the Psalms of a different priestly order. A priest will rise, the Messiah himself, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that the priesthood of old, the Levitical order, the order of Aaron, was lacking in some way. It was deficient in some sense. And so the prophecy was, looking forward, these things symbolize, point to a time, a place, a person, where that which is fulfilled in part, or represented in part, will be fulfilled in whole when he arrives. This is the rhetorical context in which our text is given today. The argument is employed to make the point of the author that the old order anticipated the new. The anticipation of the new order and covenant presupposes inherent limitations and deficiencies of the old or the current situation before Christ. Yet there is an end times, there is a glorious future, there is an orientation towards progress according to God's sovereign plan to which the old covenant order pointed. An eschatological trajectory, if you will, of history. There's a philosophy, there's a shape, there is a linear path of history that is identified in the scripture. That which is in seed form is blossoming and producing fruit into the future. That which is in shadowy form will give way to the substance which is Christ. That which is representative of the old is substantially fulfilled in the new. And this is the direction that the Old Testament pointed and this apex of revelation at the coming of Christ was the momentous occasion to which the author of Hebrews draws our attention as he brings up these rhetorical points. Why would we call it the old if there wasn't going to be a new? Why would there be a prophet, uh, or why would the prophets declare that a covenant on the horizon will bring the power to restore such that you have never even dreamed of as of yet? 
Why would the author of the Psalms write that there's coming a Messiah according to a different order, a high priest according to Melchizedek, who won't have the limitations of mere humanity, the old covenant where they had to make atonement for their own sins and they only served for a time and died in office. There would be one who would be sinless and live forever. There would be Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Hebrews 7, this imagery is pointed to again and again. It was fitting in verse 26 of chapter 7 that we should have such a high priest. Why? It was prophesied of old. And here in It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as the author draws our attention to. If anyone is truly going to a high priest, he must have the following modifiers, qualifications. He must be, according to Hebrews 7.26, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. This is the context of the new covenant. These are the things that the prophets spoke of of old that are now fulfilled in Christ. As we continue to read in verse 8, it says, For he finds fault with them, uh, meaning the prophets of old, or Jeremiah, understood the limitations of the old covenant when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. If the first covenant had been faultless, we had found in verse 7, there would have been uh, no occasion to look for a second. So what is it that we are looking for? Well, we identified a few things already, but I'll just point you to a couple other references in the language of the text that talks about the uh, limits of the old or what was limited in the old is now sufficiently supplied in the new. Chapter 7, verse 19, for instance. For the law made nothing perfect. You see, the law had limitations. It could not perfect us. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. So there, the new covenant, the newness of the new, is a better hope. The words that the author uses to describe it. And through this better hope, we have we draw near to God. We read verse 19 again in full. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. That phrase, draw near to God, or we draw near to God, is perhaps the most powerful phrase in the smallest number of words in the entire book of Hebrews. This nearness to the Lord, this reconciliation with Him, this acceptability in His presence, this communion, this fellowship, this friendship that is described in this phrase is what makes the new covenant new. This was not possible to the degree that it is now at the time when Jeremiah was writing his letter. There was a complicated system of atonement that involved priests that would go before you. However, in Jesus Christ, we can draw near to God such that no one, even the faithful, in the old covenant ever knew prior to Christ's arrival on the scene and the awareness of what His mediation, His high priesthood means to all who are in Him, to all who are born again. Chapter 9, verse 11 again answers the question, what is new? When it says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, when he uh, then, uh, uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with, with hands, that is, not of this creation. So here we see language that talks about the priestly order of Christ and the intercession in God's presence, which is represented by the place of his meeting with man. The imagery or analogy, illustration of tent is used. 
And the idea is that the tent of old was deficient. It was portable, it was just fabric, it was made by human hands. And of course, when the people proved faithless and apostate, ultimately the place of meeting was put away from them. The temple was destroyed, the glory of the Lord left the temple, and the people were alienated from the presence of God. No place of meeting because of their unfaithfulness. And this place that was merely made by hands that couldn't accommodate everybody, that location, they had to look to a a sinner high priest who would go before them and make atonement by a mere animal as a symbolic covering for their sins. This was what was made by hands. This was a deficiency. This was a limitation. Yet, in the new covenant, a more perfect tent, not made with human hands, would be erected as it were. What is this perfect tent? Hebrews 8.1 tells us another point, and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. He is uh, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on heaven. This is Psalm 110 fulfilled. This was also stated at the beginning of, of Hebrews chapter 1. When Christ ascended, He ascended unto that true tent, the one not made with human hands. He is therefore, according to verse 2 of chapter 8, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not man. So here in the context of the new covenant, we find fulfilled what was limited in the old, sufficiently and gloriously fulfilled in the new. A tent of meeting, the true tent. Ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth, heaven when we die, the place of ultimate manifest reconciliation between us and a holy God. Also in 1224, you can Uh, Go forward in your own time, fast forward and read more, and especially in chapter 12, of what is available to us in the presence of God that would have spelled only fearful judgment to those who went before. Thirdly, under context, what's new in the new covenant? We've talked about it's introduced in context, Jeremiah's context, rhetorical context. Finally, let me close in the first point with historical context. Reading again, Hebrews 8, 13. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I wanted to pause on this note and remind us of our text last week. Turning back to Matthew 24, you'll recall the prophecy that Jesus gave and the disciples' question and His response. Jesus left the temple and was going away, Matthew 24, 1. When the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, obviously they were impressed with this structure and they drew Christ's attention to it as if, have you ever seen anything like this before? Isn't this spectacular, Master? He answered them. I'm sure it came as a shock to their ears. You see these, do you not? To what was he drawing their attention when he said these words? Well, among the other things, the buildings in the temple, blocks of stone, some of them Josephus records as 70 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 8 feet tall. These were the building materials of this particular edifice to which the disciples drew Jesus' attention. And he said, listen, it's about to be destroyed in this generation. These stones that are so huge that mankind could not imagine a more impressive structure will be cast down. He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Why? The language, the judgment, the shocking, destructive language spoken of here. Well, for one thing, in the new covenant, this tent made by man's mere hands was not going to be needed anymore. It will be the object, the point of contact for God's judgment to come upon the people, but it will be replaced by a tent 
by a structure, by a temple, if you will, that is not made by mere human hands. Verse 3, And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? We recalled that three-part uh, question. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Jesus doesn't question the premise, uh, doesn't uh, correct them to say, oh, the, the age is not for you to know. He says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. He goes on to tell them the conditions of the judgment that is coming. And then he says in the midst of his prophecy and in his answer to their question in verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all th these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we can assume then in context, by just supplying basic hermeneutics, that Hebrews was written before the temple fell. Because we see this kind of present tense language, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. To what does the author refer? Well, the dying and doomed old covenant order. Christ has come. Now the sacrifices in the temple are nothing but blasphemy. God will visit them with His judgment. And as Matthew 24 proclaims, and as Jesus Himself predicted, the temple will be destroyed. In the next chapter, the, our author records by this, the Holy Spirit indicates in verse 8, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Uh, also, you know, similar to the language that Jesus said, it is good for me to go away because I will send a comforter, paraclete, an advocate for you, uh, the Holy Spirit. But also we find in the context of Hebrews, it is good for Christ to go away because why? He will enter that tent of mediation, if you will, the heavenly places to intercede on our behalf. He is functioning even today, making intercession for us as our high priest. That's why it's good for him to go. In a similar way, it is good for the old order to be rendered obsolete, the temple to be destroyed. Why? Because so long as the old order stands, that holy place, the first section still standing, it, uh, which is symbolic of the present age, it, it is to say that the ultimate fulfillment has not arrived. This the Holy Spirit indicates, the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. And notice that similar language. The temple, as a structure made by human hands, symbolized a present age. Jesus said that the end of the age will come in the generation of his hearers. So what is represented here? What, to what do these writers of the New Testament refer? They refer to the age of the Old Covenant where the temple and its sacrifices represent so far in the minds of the faithful the closest they can get to God. When the veil is torn, when the temple is destroyed, what does that represent? It represents the old order is now obsolete. And the way is made straight for us to enter into the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ, our mediator, our high priest. And these are the days to which Jeremiah looked forward to 
with faithful bated breath and prophesied from his pen was spoken of an era where the old order would be a mere shadow and free access in the great high priest would be purchased at the cost of his own blood for all who are in Christ Jesus. This is the context of the new covenant that our author refers to when he writes these glorious words in Hebrews chapter 8. Second major point, what's new in the new covenant is intensely relational. This will, of course, build on what we've stated. Let me introduce this section by saying there are covenant categories to which I sometimes refer. They've been identified and developed by numerous theologians, among them Meredith Klein, who saw a pattern in treaties of old that we also see in the Scriptures when a document describing a relationship between a greater power and a lesser party was laid out in Near Eastern culture. It would often have, or invariably I should say, have these five elements. Preamble, which is the introduction that introduces the parties. It reveals the nature, character, standing, and office of the higher authority and the lesser uh, party. Secondly, there's prologue, which is a historical account of the relationship and interaction between party A and party B, the two parties in question in the covenant ratification document. Thirdly, there's law, what is required, required the stipulations, the ethical demands for that the lesser party must abide by to remain in good standing with the, with the uh, sovereign. Thirdly, there's sanctions, blessings for law-keeping and obedience, and curses for breaking the covenant. Finally, there's arrangements for succession, how this relationship will continue. Well, if we think of those categories as a basic point of reference, we can see in just this short citation, relatively speaking, from Jeremiah 31, that aspects of all five of these categories are brought into a, a more fuller, revelatory light because of Jesus' arrival on the scene. That is, we see more about the sovereignty of God. We see more about the sinfulness of man. We understand more about what law-keeping is and how it's possible. We understand more about blessings and curses, and we understand the continuity and the power of this covenant on into the future with much greater detail through the sufficient revelation of Jesus Christ, both the power to carry it through and also the testimony of His revelation, what it actually is. So under this, we find that the new covenant is new in part because it is intensely relational. Intensely relational. The degree of distance, disparity between sinful man and a holy God is transcended in, in Christ. And it is an intensely uh, real relationship. This drawing near to God that the author of Hebrews refers to is powerful indeed. This is underscored when we realize our sovereign. Remember the preamble? It declares to us the authority of the one who is making the covenant himself. Notice this note of authority in the text. Behold, where we see divine initiative, under intensely relational, we see the divine initiative, the sovereign power of God himself in ratifying this covenant. Verse 8 again of Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. This language is definitive, it is certain, and it is a statement of promise by God Himself. Notice as we read again through this, how many times 
this authoritative language is used. How many times possessive uh, uh, pronouns and lang- or personal pronouns and possessive context is, u- is used. He says in verse 9, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. He's saying even the old covenant was by divine initiative. But he will, by divine initiative, establish something different now. He says, For they did not continue in my covenant, verse 9, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. He goes on, for they shall all know me. An intensely relational circumstance. From the least of them to the greatest, he says, verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. This emphatic, definitive language, this divine initiative, Christ or God himself declaring in Christ, I will, I will is again repeated in the Old Covenant. Jeremiah 31, as, as was just cited. Jeremiah goes on in chapter 36, a few uh, verses later, to say, Behold, I will gather, speaking again, the first person of God's voice echoes through the Scriptures of old, I will gather from the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It goes on and on. Could we have any more certainty delivered to us in special revelation of the divine initiative that God, who is powerful enough to save and resurrect and to change the heart of man, even as he spoke this world into existence by the power of his almighty word. Jesus Christ, his ambassador and his messenger, his prophet in this last day, who was the heir and is the heir of all things and through whom the whole world was created. There is an intensely relational plan that he will initiate and it will not be stopped. Nothing will stand in the way of our great Lord. Meredith Klein says of the preamble of a covenant that that section, the opening, is to identify the, uh, it's to identify the lordship and the, uh, of the great king and to stress his greatness, his dominance, and his eminence. Identifying the lordship of the great king and stressing his greatness, his dominance, and his eminence. And in the language of Hebrews 8, and in the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 and 36, we see exactly that. That that the power of this covenant to reconcile man unto God and man even to man will involve the direct involvement by the sovereign. This is the covenant structure identified even in our text today to which our attention is drawn in the text. Secondly, under intensely relational we find this power 
uh, exercised or this power demonstrated in reconciliation. Notice the first phrases quoted from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. Hebrews 8, 8 again. Declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You notice two houses are referenced there. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jeremiah himself was a prophet who prophesied, who spoke. He ministered under the last two kings of the reign, in the reign of Judah before they were exiled. Now, that is to say, Jeremiah was primarily a prophet to Judah. But time and again, he was careful to say that Israel, the northern tribes, Ephraim, they are referred to, will also be reconciled. And this is the language of reconciliation that is used to demonstrate the power of this new covenant and the newness of it, in fact. He says in 31.1, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. God is the God, the sovereign of all the clans. He says, uh, just highlighting a few verses, verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the furthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. So regardless of the distance between them and the hardship that they are dealing with, God will bring disparate peoples together. He will reconcile them. He says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Poetic imagery for the far corners of the earth. This power to reconcile will be extended even unto the far corners, the distant regions, the ends of the earth, the coastlands indeed. This uh, language in the new covenant of its reconciliation power is also picked up in the book of Revelation. Uh, as, as we read there, we have the imagery of the people of God, the whole people of God, uh, d- uh, illustrated for us in numerical terms in Revelation 7, verses 4 through 9, for instance, where it talks about uh, 12,000 from each tribe added together making 144,000. It's a numerical way. It's an illustrated way to describe that all the people of God, the fullness of the full, the whole number will be reconciled, will be gathered in will be uh, reunited to one another in Christ. It struck me as I was preparing for this message that there is a yearning in the heart of everyone just about who is cognizant of the things that divide us, of the disparate factions, of the distance between men, of the many warring uh, parties and, and problems that we have experienced since sin dawned on mankind with Adam and Eve all the way in the beginning. And man cries out for reconciliation, does he not? I thought of two movies to illustrate this. I don't know if you remember a movie called Remember the Titans. Uh, Remember the Titans is set in the, you know, kind of uh, uh, post-desegregation South. And basically the story is, uh, um, you know, uh, those who are racially segregated, African-Americans, you know, black from white, are united in a common purpose, cause, and goal. And sports is a great unifier. So this common goal in, in uh, you know, moving an oblong piece of leather up and down a big grassy square is the, has the miraculous transcendent power to unify disparate people groups. Football, after all, will bring us together. And we watch that, and our heart skips a beat, and maybe it jogs a tear from the corner of our eye. Why? Because we see these parties and these factions who were once separated by the warring factions of race and disparity and history and slavery, brought together as one new man under football. 
Isn't that great? Well, no, it's not great. It's stupid. There is no unity in football. But I watched another movie recently, incidentally about football, but more substantially about Christ. It was called Woodlawn. And in this movie, it was a great example of what truly transcends man's differences and thus has the power to unify. And it was the conversion of most of a football team to Christ that actually allowed their season to go forward with some semblance of unity and actually gave them the ability to reach out to other schools who normally were their bitter rivals with a message of unity in Jesus Christ. In the end, football was a funny little footnote, but what was glorified was the power of Christ to bring peoples who were once separated together in Christ. This is what Paul refers to when he says the middle wall of division between Jew and Gentile will come down in Christ. In the new covenant, the unifying power of Jesus Christ is manifestly demonstrated in the fact that those who know him as their father are all family, brothers and sisters across historical eons, across cultural divides, across national boundaries, they are united in Christ because the new covenant is intensely relational and in Christ it has the power to do so. But greater still is the unifying power of the new covenant to unite us to God himself. And in uh, Hebrews 8, verses 11 and 12, we see some of the, how this will take place. Our author records, they shall not teach one another his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sin no more. The law of old was imperfect. It could not provide this kind of intimate knowledge, this intensely relational communion and connection to God Almighty. As we have read, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The intensely relational nature of the new covenant is such that it binds us to the Lord with cords that cannot be broken. And it does not bind us through the fallible power of a human priestly order, but through the perfect mediation of Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. And in him, the communion and the knowledge is so thorough, so substantive, so sweet, that those from the least to the greatest, from the furthest to the closest, from the wicked, most wicked sinner to the most impressive, at least hypocritically speaking, of pious among us, all shall know him from the least to the greatest. Why? Because of the mercy extended toward them for their iniquities. And the fact that in the sufficient sacrifice of Christ's blood, their sins are remembered no more. This theme is expanded. It is proclaimed. It is uh, gloriously displayed throughout the entire record of Hebrews. The historical prologue section of a covenant recounts, as Klein tells us, the great king's previous relationships with his vassals, with special emphasis on benefits or blessings of that relationship. Well, you see, one reason why this new covenant is called new is because the relationship of the sovereign, God, to the vassal, the lesser party, us, is now recast. 
There's a different relationship that is possible in Christ. The previous relationship of typological communion through the old priestly order is now transcended. And there is special evidence, there is special emphasis on the greatness and the blessings that now and the benefits that are lavished upon us in this connection to the Lord. Hebrews 10 tells us in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is shocking to those especially acquainted with the limitations of the old order. The audacity to just boldly go into a holy place was something that would be so utterly foreign to them that their jaw would drop at this revelation. They would know from the record of Scripture that if you came to the presence of the Lord uncovered by the ceremonial cleanliness, you would be struck dead in a moment. They knew if you weren't a particular individual who had been anointed to go before the people on their behalf into the holy place, you would be struck dead in an instant. They knew that Uzzah, when he reached out to touch the ark, which symbolized the perfect place of God's meeting with his people that could not be compromised, even good intentions were worthy of immediate judgment and, and, and you would be struck dead for doing such a thing. But the book of Hebrews goes on to declare in chapter 10 and chapter 12 that we have not come to Mount Zion which cannot be touched or Mount Sinai that is that cannot be touched because the judgment of God engulfs it with the firestorm of His wrath and lightning. But we can with confidence enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's that language again, verse 22, chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The intensely relational aspects of the new covenant are revealed in Christ inasmuch as He provides entry for us into the presence of God. Lastly, this morning, the new covenant is intrinsically powerful. And here we'll just touch on briefly and pick up again in a future message. But suffice it to say that uh, the remaining categories of covenant include ethical stipulations like law. Uh, Klein writes that this section of a covenant document would enumerate the vassals, that's the lesser party's obligations or responsibilities to the greater king. It was a guide, so to speak, for maintaining relationship. Also next you would see sanctions. What were these? These were blessings, a list of blessings for obedience and curses for uh, falling short, for breaking the covenant would befall those who were unfaithful. And, And finally, succession arrangements, provisions for continuity of the covenant relationship over future generations. The, all three aspects, law, sanctions, and succession, are different in the new. These aspects, that is to say, of the law in the administration of the new covenant, there is a difference from the old. We see this difference in chapter 8, verse 10. The law is not an external con- condemnation, a judge over us only, but instead becomes an intrinsic part of our new nature. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In the new covenant, 
the law, the righteous dictates and demands, and the terms and conditions of holiness is not just an external reality that we shudder and shake in front of, realizing that we're falling short. But when God reconciles us to Him, when He redeems us, when we are reconstituted, regenerate, born again, something fundamental changes in our very nature. And now the law that was an external judge or condemnation becomes an internal love of our regenerate heart. The things that once stood against us as witness to our guilt in the court of God's perfect justice, there are things now that we want to champion and move forward and to obey and to walk in as the Spirit gives us His ability. And in fact, as we find, as Paul enumerates in his gospel, the righteous law-keeping of Christ is imputed unto us. So now the law is a part of the fabric of our being because of the great exchange. Christ's law-keeping is an internal reality for those who have experienced the intrinsic power of the new covenant. Now the list of blessings are manifold. Uh, We've touched on some of them already. Namely, that we will know the Lord. But the blessings uh, even in the assurance and the power, the keeping power of God's word in this new covenant ought to cause our heart to rejoice and to overflow with worship to his great name. These are the sanctions in the new covenant now which don't spell doom for us in Christ, but instead as he writes his law upon our hearts and minds, we receive the blessing of understanding of the gospel itself no longer dependent on the special knowledge of those who have been gifted to understand like prophets of old who had an exclusive handle on truth at least to some degree, or those who were of the priestly order who would teach and expound and deliver the law to the people. But now the law is in our hearts and our ability to understand is greatly magnified. And each one of us can know the Lord personally, For they shall all know me, he says, from the least of them to the greatest. The greatest benefit of all, of course, is verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And this also speaks to the succession arrangements, the continuity, the longevity of this covenant. You remember in Matthew 24, Jesus cries over Jerusalem. He says, at least in literary form, in lament, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have, uh, or how I have longed to gather you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. The difference, that's an old covenant, covenant a judgment. That's a sanction for those who are unfaithful to the old, old order and did not hear, had no ears to hear the message of the kingdom proclaimed in Jesus' own words. But for those who are in Christ, for those who do have ears to hear, they do not fall into this category of lamentable judgment soon to come. But instead, it says of them in 24.13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The keeping power is intrinsic in the new covenant. It has the ability 
to persevere or to preserve the saints so that we persevere even in hardship and trial. Hebrews goes on to proclaim that a shaking of the foundations is soon to come. The foundations of the old order will be destroyed. So anyone standing not on Jesus Christ will be turned to rubble, but those who stand on him will endure. They will experience the intrinsically powerful nature of the new covenant to keep them in Christ. And reminding ourselves again exactly how this is possible, I want to leave you with one final verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Speaking of Christ, our author says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. This morning, as we celebrate communion, which is for you if you are in Christ today, I would encourage you to look to the bread, look to the cup, and to see there the sacrifice that made the intensely, relationally, intrinsically powerful reality of the new covenant possible for you. It was the sacrifice of Christ's broken body. It was the precious price of His shed blood that purchased for us a redemption for our souls, forgiveness for our sins, and salvation unto eternal life. Let us transition in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, we lift our hearts before You this day, and we thank You, Father, in light of the truth that we have heard proclaimed from Your Word, that You are great, majestic, and powerful, the Sovereign who has ordained the end from the beginning. And You have made a way at the cost of your son's blood for reconciliation, relationship, where we can draw near to you. We rejoice in these things today. Call us out of darkness, Lord Jesus, of lack of understanding, into the marvelous light of truth overflowing in gospel reality as we partake in the elements today. If there are any who fellowship among us, Father, or who, has, who have yet not experienced the fellowship indeed, of to be reconciled and ransomed by the power of Christ's blood into the fellowship of the saints, into the beloved, into nearness with you. I pray that they would cry out for salvation and that the word would be planted like seed in fertile soil made so uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit that would produce fruit unto salvation. Thank you, Lord, for these moments that you have prepared for us today. May we not take them lightly, but consider the precious gift that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.